Thank you to everyone listening to the Vobis Dude podcast. We're exploring the lives and passions of people around the world. Today, I'm here with Cecilia, who was introduced to me by Wade, who is another person on one of our previous podcasts. Cecilia, could you introduce yourself to us? Yes. Well, I'm Cecilia. Uh, I'm 26 year old. I come from Rome. And now I live in Sweden. I'm doing my PhD in the middle of the forest on wolves. And um, you recently just came back from a trip, is that correct? Yes, it's correct. What, what were you doing on this trip? I was in Norway and I was working as a field technician for an Arctic fox conservation project. We were heading to the Arctic fox dens and capturing and marking pups with a microchip and then observing their behavior so we can uh, afterwards we can follow the population and see how it's doing. Nice. And is this related to your thesis or is this another project? This is another project and it's actually related to my master thesis because uh, I came I went to Norway for for um, for doing my master thesis on arctic fox uh, ecology and uh, the coolest part of the thesis was to go actually go out in the field and uh, and mark the paps and then after that i came back in the office and then i did a lot of statistics nice and yeah. what what is the topic of your thesis by the way of my master thesis yes yeah it was uh, how white and blue arctic foxes uh, managed to be and live out in the field so i was comparing the survival and the breeding success of Arctic foxes because they have two different color. Uh, the, their, their fur can be white or can be darker. They say blue. It's it's yeah. a bluish uh, fur, and uh, and apparently they. I mean this this can be connected to the camouflage. So their ability to hide out in the field. And when a fox is white, we assume that has a higher survival where there is a lot of snow. So we were we were looking at how they how they manage uh, out in the field. So their fitness. Nice. And can um, why the Arctic fox? I know a lot of your research is centered around this animal. Is it yeah. something you chose very early on, or are there any reasons for that? No, honestly, not. I I was looking at articles. Uh, I was interested in the Arctic environment and Arctic ecosystem. And Arctic fox sounded very interesting because of his adaptability. I was very fascinated by the way an Arctic fox can <laughs> endure the winter and can survive in such an extreme environment. So I think I was more like fascinated by the animal and then I found this research group. Hmm. And, and you also spent a year in the Norwegian tundra studying this fox. You produced yeah. a documentary. Could you... Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yes, absolutely. So I was, uh, so first of all, I was two months out in the field in the Norwegian tundra mm -hmm. and I started to write a diary. Um, so my field diary and, uh, and I started to film because I love to film while I'm doing things. I love to tell what I'm doing through images and, and stories. And uh, and then I then I started to film. And when I came back, um, when I came back 
to Trondheim, the, the, the closest city, I met my boyfriend and we started to film together because we, we do this. We, we film and we, we make documentaries together. And then we started to film all over Norway to tell this story about Arctic foxes. And uh, yeah, and more or less after one year, we, we made a documentary about it's mainly about Arctic foxes and my experience out in the field. So it, it really goes through my feelings and my impressions being out in the Norwegian tundra. And then it tells about Arctic fox life and biology and uh, adapt, adapt, adaptation to the, to the Arctic environment. And, uh, and then we, we, we sold it to the Italian television and, uh, and it was a big success. So we we're very happy about it. Yeah, I had a look at it, and it was it was quite amazing. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. The landscape was really beautiful. Could you describe the tundra to you know people listening who probably you know some of them might not have known about it or even uh, yes. are familiar? Yeah. Yes. So uh, Norwegian tundra is a is a very vast land above the tree line, and to me it really looks like the moon. It's covered by lichens and moss. There, there are no trees, so this is crazy. That's why I think it looks like the moon. And the uh, Norwegian tundra is constantly crossed by creeks and rivers and lakes. There is a lot of water. I really love it. And it's silent and it's broad. And you, you can see very far in the Norwegian tundra. You just need binoculars. Mm. And what season did you go um, on this trip? So it, it was mainly all summer and a bit of autumn. And then, uh, then I went back to the office, but then I went back out in the winter. And then yeah. back to the, back the next summer, and now, now again. <laughs> so it's been a back and forth, but uh, the, the, biggest, uh, like, the biggest impact was the, a whole summer when I started my thesis. So I was there like two months, two months and a half. And it's very intense because you go out and you, you have nothing. Like, I mean, you have food. You have your stove to cook, but then you use the water from the rivers, and you have no con no phone connection, and it's very it's very isolated. I would say you're very far from people and houses. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about this isolation. Is it um, what if do you have any downtime, and what do you spend during this downtime? Yeah, well, yes, you have downtime because uh, because you have to you have to wait for the pups to get into the traps, mm -hmm. but you have to give them time. So you check every two hours these traps. So you you're 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 I mean you you have another person with you. So it's a team of two people. Mm -hmm. But and so you start to talk a lot and you have a lot of time to get to know each other. You immediately break the ice with the other person because you're out in the field together and you can really know from childhood to life stories and love stories. So you know about each other after one week quite well. Sure. And um, but if I think about the downtime, yes, uh, what I do, like, for example, I don't listen to music when I'm out in the field, because hearing is a very important sense when you're out in the field. So you really need to listen mm -hmm. around uh, foxes barking, birds, birds of prey. So you are completely into into that environment. So I would say that music becomes too much mm -hmm. in that sense. And also there is no battery, like we have a battery <laughs> bank, but we need to use it for the equipment. 
So no, no, no phone, not at all. Like all you need the phone is for uh, using the alarm because you have yeah. to wake up. You have to wake up day and night. So you wake up every two hours. So night, it's it's the hardest time, I would say. Uh, but but what I do a lot is reading. I I read a lot, and actually I rediscovered how beautiful it is reading. Uh, before that, I was into studies, and it was it was a bit hard to find time to read. And uh, out in the field, you you really have time, and time is so extended, and you can really get into the story and into the writer's mind. Nice. So. Um, yeah. Uh, so I guess this is a little bit of a tangent, but you basically spent a few months without using your phone. Is that correct? Well, yes, it's a back and forth because you, you are out in the field and then you come back one day. You, mm -hmm. you take a shower, you wash your clothes, you call your parents and say you're alive. Uh -huh. <laughs> call your boyfriend. Hey, I'm still here. Don't forget me. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, yeah, basically it's one month because you're just... Do you you have like one week out in the field and one day back to buy food and shower and wash your clothes and then you're back out. So it's yeah, it's a lot of time without the phone. It was it refreshing was was Very it much. different, yeah? Yes. Yeah. I mean you, you spend time with yourself and I usually I'm very inspired when I'm out in the field because I I have no distractions of like phones and social medias and you you really can talk to yourself somehow. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it was really interesting. Um, I want to bring it back to the Arctic fox because you followed this animal um, for so long. Could you give us, like, describe some of its habits and kind of the the role it has in its environment a little bit? Yeah, yeah sure. Arctic fox are, um, they are canids. So they are basically small, small dogs and they are, very elegant and, and also very cute when they are pups. And um, what is cool about the Arctic fox, as I said before, is that they are extremely adapted to low polar winter temperatures. And uh, they have a super thick fur and their paws are covered by fur during the winter. And uh, they have a thick fat layer and small ears. So these are all adaptations to reduce the heat loss. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the other cool thing that we also said is that the Arctic fox can be white, but can also be blue. So it's like a dimorphism due to a genetic mutation. So they, they, they have a white fur during the winter, but they can also be very dark. And that's that, that, that goes where, with where they live, because they live in the Arctic tundra. And that can be both inland tundra and, and coastal tundra. So they can live in the... In the um, inland but they can also live in the coast and eat like carcasses of seals fish they can uh, they can also live of uh, seabirds so they have they have a super broad diet and and they have an important role out in the arctic tundra because they are both predators and they are predated so i would say they are in the middle of the food web so that that's a very very important role uh, when you are an arctic fox and uh, and the biggest thing is that they when they are inland they eat a lot of lemmings so and they really rely on lemming and voles that they are rodents and uh, and they they depend on these animals so much. So when when is a high rodent here? Because rodents can go up and down with their numbers and population dynamic. Mm -hmm. So when it's a high rodent here, Arctic foxes uh, 
breed a lot. They make a lot of pups. While when it's a low rodent year, basically they don't have pups. And that's what happened this summer. We had a low rodent year and we had very few breedings and very few Arctic fox pups out in nature. But this is this is very natural. So it's nothing to worry about because uh, they rely on this food source. And so they go up and down with the with these rodents. And, and what um, dictates the number of rodents that are coming up? Uh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> it, it really, it really, it's very much related to the climate and the food availability for rodents and the snow. So we're, they really, they talk a lot about also climate change, how the climate change is affecting rodent cycles because they're fading. They're starting to to not do anymore this up and down. But I would say it's related to the rodent food, food source. So to the availability of of, um, <clears throat> of moss and lichens and other vegetation out in the tundra. Okay, nice. And mm. and you also, I saw in the documentary, you made food for the foxes. Yes. Well, what do you put into that food? Well, that is uh, actually road kills. So it's actually meshed carcasses of oh. anglates <laughs> yeah and it's, you just uh, go out and find them no they bring i mean actually what what we do there is this man at the breeding station called Turalf, and he takes care of those foxes so the, i i can briefly tell you this project it's um <clears throat> it's a nina project norwegian institute for nature research and it's in norway and one of his projects is the Arctic Fox Captive Breeding Program. So they breed Arctic foxes. They have nine pairs in a, we call it the breeding station. So it's nine big, big enclosures. And, uh, and we feed the foxes and they, 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 do, they have pups. And after a while, when pups are like eight months, more or less, then they, we release the pups out in the field. And that's to 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 help the population out in the field, and uh, and we give them food every day to these foxes, and uh, and it's actually food that we are provided with, and and it's I think it's a company, but we we get this uh, big puree of uh, uh, angulates, uh, but it's not they're not killed for that purpose. It's road kills, so it's it's a very smart way of doing this nice and so since you spend so much time with these animals and you know help them with the breeding do mm-hmm. you get an attachment to them after an extended period of time and is it hard to let them go when they when you release them mm, i would say no yeah for sure they are pups and they are very very cute and uh when when you handle them to mark them you you feel that it's a pup but on the other side i would say that i really perceive how it is a wild animal mm-hmm. and when it comes to a wild animal then I feel I don't get attached because I kind of I don't know there is something else going on like a respect a feeling of respect and feeling of how 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 independent and I don't know it's very different from a pet I would say but uh, for sure um, for sure I I have a lot of feelings when I when I touch these pups and when I observe them out in the field. But I wouldn't say that I get an attachment so that I cannot let them go. No. And uh, 
why does this animal or why does the population need so many conservation efforts? Is it struggling because of human interaction, competitors with other animals? Uh, yeah, so, so the, it, both, I would say. Uh, and the thing is that Arctic foxes are abundant all over the Arctic, so they have a very broad distribution and they're doing good. But in Sweden, Norway and Finland, it's uh, it's like an endangered it's an endangered species. It's it's critically endangered in the red list of the UCN. And uh, what happened is that it was seriously it had a very high hunting pressure in the early 20th century. And what happened is that the population went so down that uh, it was we could say that it was um, functionally extincted, like extinct. So they they couldn't breed. They there were no enough so arctic fox then became protected since 1930 i think um uh, more or less i think yeah in the 30s in norway and in sweden and in finland and no matter the the fact that it was protected by hunting but the population didn't manage to recover and uh, and probably it's because the competition with the red fox because red fox is a is a big competitor and it's also a predator some, sometimes. So, and it's a bigger animal and it's uh, stronger and they can actually take Arctic fox dens. So that's a big threat. And, uh, and so they started large scale conservation action since like 1999, something like that. So right now they, they still need conservation efforts. Now they are trying because one of the conservation efforts is to provide food out in the field. So we have these feeding stations where mm -hmm. where foxes can, it's like a barrel with with dog food, dry yeah. dog food. And it's usually close to den sites out in the field. So foxes can can go there and eat this food. And there is a camera trap so we can see, we can get a lot of information out of there. And there is also a microchip to microchip reader to read these chips that we put uh, into the pups when they are born and uh, and what we are trying now what they're trying the project is to reduce the feeding and see how they how they're doing so i would say that they had a very very hard time so the population went so down that they needed help to recover and once and the population is doing very well now I mean, it's improving very much. I'm wondering how how you can um, differentiate in the feeding station. Like, do other animals go in and try to get that food that you want to give to the Arctic foxes? Very good question. So they they in the Arctic tundra we also have red foxes and wolverine. Mm. So the actually the entrance of the feeding station is small enough. It's good. It's, I mean, it's big enough for an Arctic fox, but then it's too small for a red fox and a wolverine. So we have a lot of pictures of Arctic fox, of red foxes and wolverines trying to get <laughs> to the feeding station. Actually, sometimes they manage, but uh, mainly it's uh, Arctic fox size, and uh, and and you, so you 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 try to, yeah. To reduce the invasion from other animals. So, do you ever have an instance of one of these animals getting stuck in your feeding station? <laughs> I think we saw when you when you go through the pictures, 
we mm-hmm. see an animal trying to get in and then the next picture is it, picture is back out and in and out just with the head but then they <laughs> but then they they manage to get out i would say it's not dangerous for 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 the other animal but yes a lot of pictures where they are trying to sneak in i'm i'm sure those are very cute <laughs> i would love yes. to see them it's amazing um, to go through the pictures of the camera traps and you also see like uh, reindeers and the and when it's in uh, Dovrefjell area that it's a very nice mountain area where they have muskoks you can also see muskoks looking at the camera it's like it's very i mean wildlife cameras are amazing so <laughs> lots of awesome. fun hey, also when you were out here or when you were out there did you see anything that you just never expected to see Mm, well, the the, the muskox, I heard about it, but I had never seen it, and it's it's an incredible animal. It's a, it's a, it's like a big buffalo, and it looks like uh, coming from from ancient times. It's a it's a huge buffalo, and it's a, it's it was a group of like eight eight muskox, and they were. F- like 100 meters from the tent and I woke up and okay that was not expected because I woke up I got out of the tent and I found this group of eight muskox just resting in the sun and muskox can be very dangerous to you so you have to be careful because they can run into you like they can mm, you you should run (laughs) and uh, so you don't have to disturb them and get too close but they were on the way so they were between me and the arctic fox then so we had to go all the way around very distant so there is like a security distance you have to keep from moscow but uh, apart from that i was hoping to see wolver a wolverine but it's such an elusive animal that i it's very it's it's barely impossible to see a wolverine and a lot of birds i would say i had my binoculars and i and i saw a lot of birds of prey, so like falcons and yeah. So there is life up there. <laughs> nice. And um, you know, I'm not sure exactly where to fit this in, but mm-hmm. where did you develop this interest in wildlife? Was it always there, or did you develop it during your studies? Mm, I think so. I can recall my interest interest in let's say so. I started from animal from animal behavior. Uh, I think what I remember, at least, I should ask to my parents probably. <laughs> but what I remember is uh, reading Conrad Lawrence books when I when I was doing my high school. And Conrad Lawrence is an ethologist, and he studied animal behavior, and it's one of the first uh, ethologists. And um, but I feel it's something that definitely goes back before high school maybe goes back to my childhood and the huge amount of time that i spent outdoor with no precise task just uh, being out uh, something very nice i remember is uh, us uh, i was uh, in my i was probably 4 or 5 years old and uh, we were living in a country house for 2 weeks during the summer it's like a summer camp i would say and so first thing in the morning for those that couldn't sleep longer, so that woke up at six, seven, we would go and look at the ants <laughs> that they were creating, creating incredibly long lines on the gravel road. And they were bringing leaves and seeds way bigger than their bodies. 
And, and that's where we started discussing the different roles of the animals and ants in this case and how they were so accurate. And uh, so I think that's where I started to develop my critical mind on animal behavior and why they behave this way rather than the other way. So maybe it goes back to my childhood, but that is more hard, harder to remember, I would say. Nice. And, and part of bringing this fascination that you have with other people is sharing it. So you, know, you do it through film and documentary. I wanted to ask you what it took to produce this documentary and um, when you started your experience filming wildlife. Yes. So, um, <clears throat> so I started filming wildlife while I was, uh, when I be began my studies. So first of all, I started to film my high school sit-in during the occupation. I did a little documentary about my high school and all the people and why we were occupying the school. And after that, I thought, wow, this is a great way to tell a story. And then I started to film while I was out uh, during my studies, so when we were doing shorter trips, and and I and I I started to film and realized that that was uh, the way I liked to to describe what I was doing. And then I filmed a little bit. I I started do, filming more seriously when I was in South America studying um, capuchin monkeys mm -hmm. in uh, in Argentina, and uh, and. Filming was the perfect way, I think, and that's what I realized. And then, uh, and then I, when I was out in the field with Arctic foxes, uh, and I was writing the diary, I, I started filming. And uh, and actually, before going out in the field, I talked a lot with with my boyfriend about uh, the possibility of doing a documentary about this and uh, and tell a story. And so we, so we just said, let's see how it goes. You just go out and do what you feel. And I, and I started filming. And, and then, then he joined me after like one or two months. And we filmed together. And that's where we, we wrote a script. And I started, we, we started to film more, more seriously all the, all the narration part. So he was filming and I was talking. And uh, because he's um, my boyfriend, Roberto, he's a filmmaker and he's actually a marine biologist. And then he started to do filming and film for for research projects. And then we we started doing this thing together more or less like four years ago, I would say. And uh, so then we went then we wrote the script. We did a storyboard. So we decided what was first and then how things were following each other and then when we when we came back home he started to post-produce the documentary and do all the editing and um, and then I we recorded my voice over like my narration voice and uh, and I think it took more or less one year yeah yeah wow. yeah, yeah and then I mean, he, mm. go ahead go ahead yeah and then and then he took care of the selling part and that's very hard part because because it's very difficult uh, and the, the, I think the difficult thing of this type of job is when you when you have to sell it to someone then you mainly or like most of the times you have to adapt yourself a little bit and that I don't really like it because for example they asked us to change the voice so from my voice to a more professional 
narrator voice. And for sure, I understand. And uh, but but you have to adapt yourself to what they want because you're selling a product. So mm -hmm. that's tough. So um, the one that I saw, was that with your voice or was that with another? I think the one that you saw is the one with my voice. So mm -hmm. that's yeah, that's that's the let's say the original one. And then we made one for the for the TV with the with another with a professional narrator voice. Was it, it, mm. was it interesting seeing it on national TV? Was it? Oh, it was so exciting. Yeah. It was funny. Like I, I, I never thought of this. I like, could happen. <laughs> yeah. It's it's pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. And 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 everyone could see it. I mean, that's 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 the most exciting part. That when you see it, when it's broadcasted, mm -hmm. you think of all the other people that might be watching that channel. And, and I don't know, it's it's very, very exciting. And that's what we wanted to do. We want to tell the story of Arctic Foxes to the world and at least to, to the Italian public. So that that really worked, I would say. Nice. So wh what channel did it air on? I'm, I'm sure I'm not familiar with it, but mm -hmm. maybe someone listening would know. Yeah, it's a nation. It's a national TV channel. It's number three, so it's one of the main ones, and it's a program that is called Geo, and it's a, it's a nature program. So it really talks about wildlife and uh, and animals and uh, plants. So it's it's very very specific for this type of topic. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to ask a specific question. When you storyboarded, did you have any intention or you kind of just what was your story creation process like for this documentary you mean mm -hmm. yes so um the, the the we so when i was out i was writing this diary but i wasn't thinking about the filming i thought it was something completely disconnected so yeah. i was writing my diary about my feelings and then on the other side i was filming for the documentary but then when we came back home, I I was hanging out with my boyfriend and I said, oh, by the way, you know, I wrote a diary. I would like to read you some pages. And then I started to read and he was like, Cecilia, this is a perfect, perfect story to tell. This is part of the documentary. <laughs> like we, we should use what you wrote to tell the artifact story because, because we thought that we realized at least that telling a story of wildlife and uh, conservation and biology through the feelings it's something that that connects you with the people with people that that is that are watching so you don't have to uh, i mean i mean that's what we what we realize uh, what we think you don't have to say oh no or like the arctic fox uh, i mean i have to tell everything about the arctic fox in one documentary it's too heavy so mm -hmm. Probably you can start with your feelings and tell about the Arctic Fox through that. And we thought that that was that was um, a way to go. Probably like to 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 go through your feelings out in the field while being with Arctic foxes and 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 bring people out in the field with you somehow. Yeah, I think that's why it was so powerful. Is because you spoke through your own emotions through this documentary. Yeah. Uh, be before I move on, I wanted to kind of go off on a tangent here. You, 
you briefly mentioned that you occupied your school. Could you just give me some context on that? Yeah, uh, in, during my high school, we were occupying, we were protesting for several several reasons and, and a way to do it, and it's <laughs> very extreme, was to occupy the school and, uh, and do several cultural activities. So we invited a lot of, a lot of uh, writers and uh, TV directors and, and we were doing a lot of educational activities into, like in the school and uh, discussing a lot like not only political issues but also like uh, history and uh, and uh, we were also going through literature together and reading books and it was a way to to say our voice to, to i mean to to say what we wanted yeah in a in a constructive non-destructive sort yes. of way right yeah yes well it was it was it was destructive i mean uh, professor were coming to school but we had no lessons so that was the way to protest I would say so yes yeah I agree very very interesting now I want to go back to what you do basically I would say that you have what a lot of people consider to be a dream job like um, you know a lot of documentaries like the one you produced it's what a lot of young kids see and say wow I want to get into biology I want to be an environmentalist I want to study ecology and animal behavior um, could you name some of the highlights of what you do and then also some of the challenges maybe that people don't don't get to see yes so I would say that an highlight is the actual filming so when you're out in the field and you look at the animals or you look at the environment that is surrounding you and then you film and it's so much fun like filming is is fun and and you you have to think about so many things it's you have to think about the light you have to think about the sound you have to think about the 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 the, the frame you use and the so there is a lot to think about while you're filming and that i really lo love it i would say and the other highlight is when you when you transform um, a story into a script so actually it's very structured like doing a documentary can can be in many different ways you can do it in many different ways but the way we do it is to first be very loose so just just write or or talk a lot and discuss a lot and after we have a lot of material of a lot of thoughts then we put it into a script and that's also a very fun part, I would say. But um, there are a lot of challenges. And the, the biggest one is to m turn this into a job. Because you have to be... So it's very... There, there is a lot, a lot of competition, like in a lot of jobs. But this is a very competitive um, environment. Mm -hmm. And and then, then you have to find someone that buys your documentary. because, And that's very hard. So the, the, I would say a challenge is to be so unstable. And uh, actually not me and not even my boyfriend, we are doing this as a, as a unique job. So this is a, a side job for me because I'm doing a PhD. Mm -hmm. And on the side, I like to do documentaries, either by myself or but mainly with, with Roberto. And for his, it's the same because he's doing. Uh, he's a marine biologist, and he's doing. Uh, he's working with tuna fish, 
and then on the side he's doing documentaries. So our challenge now is to, I would say for him, definitely turn this into a job and it's very hard. So it's a dream job, but it's it, it you have to make it the dream job because it's not yet a job, I would say. So that's the hard part. Okay, I'm, I'm curious to know once you make it profitable, how, how you end up doing that. What do you say? Um, when when you end up making it a full-time job or if you would like to um, how you would go about doing that so mm -hmm. maybe that's a conversation for for a future date no but uh, but we have some thoughts about it so yeah. I would say that my boyfriend wants to do that as a job so a filmmaker he wants to film documentaries and sorry it's not yeah film documentaries about research projects because he mm -hmm. still is still very interested in the research environment and, and discussions and for me <laughs> that's a tough question because now I'm doing a PhD so I'm trying to uh, I want to continue and do research uh, but I know that is also very, a very tough uh, job yes. so I'm very I'm very uh, <clears throat> I'm on two feet uh, on one side I want I would like to do research and study animal behavior and conservation and ecology. On the other side, I still want to film and uh, and produce documentaries about what I'm doing. So for me, maybe if I manage, I would like to do both parallel, like simultaneously. That would be a dream job. I, I think you're say. already you already started doing both, so yeah. might as well continue. That's true. You're, you're doing pretty good at it. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah, and uh, this question's kind of related, not exactly related, but okay. um, coming back and forth from being in the field to back into society, um, being around busy cities, do you feel that people today are a bit more disconnected from nature and wildlife? And um, if so, what do you think we can do to remedy this situation? Yeah, well, uh, yes, I think that people is, is definitely more disconnected to nature. And, Okay, now I will speak broadly. I'm sure there are many, many, many people that are instead connected to nature. But if I can, if I can speak broadly, I would say that I have the feeling that nature became something that we visit for our holidays. It is, it's like I have the feeling that many times nature is very far from us, and then we go into nature as a like as a adventure or so it's I would say it's very far from our daily life um, more and more and well it's hard to it's hard to think how to remedy this but maybe a little thing could be that start maybe start from there from the daily life so we have a lot of parks and <laughs> and like gardens close to our, the place where we live and we could just walk there and realize that there is a lot of life there are a lot of birds a lot of little mammals a lot of plants that we can look at and i would say that that's something we can do daily and that could probably potentially reconnect us a little bit realize that it's not something completely far from us completely far from our daily life that we're still surrounded by nature even in the cities so that's where probably we can start and and learn about the animals we are we are living with. We're sharing the 
<laughs> building. There are swifts and and pigeons living on our roofs, and so I, I think that that's a good starting point, at least. I would say so, and um, this one kind of goes back to before you. You said you do have a chance to read a lot of books when you're out in the field. I wanted to know if you could name one of your favorite books that you read um, during this time. Yes, uh, <laughs> that's a tough question. But uh, lately, I have one book that I actually read out in the field last summer, and it was amazing. It's the the House of the Spirits of Isabel Allende. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, I mean, I was out in the field. It was so silent and I was quite alone. I mean, I had a, another girl with me, but you get a lot of, as you said, downtime. And this book is uh, like, um, it's a family sa family saga. It's a story in the in the Latin, it's a Latin American countryside story and uh, full of passion and struggles and secrets and spirits. So I was really into that book while I was out in the field. And uh, the other, yeah, and there is another, it's a tetralogy. It's um, it's called uh, the My Brilliant Friend of Elena Ferrante. It's actually an Italian writer. And, uh, and it's four books that I really, loved and I read it so quickly in Italy in Italian we say I ate those books like I was feeding on on those books during I think last summer also was was I remember reading that during the summer and uh, it's a story of a friendship and uh, it's set in Naples so it's it's uh, a lot of also passion and uh, and uh, and it's um, it's a story of a friendship from childhood to old age so it's two girls and it's all their like family stories and uh, and uh, love stories so I don't know I really like when I read I really like to get into others people's stories stories and lives mm -hmm. so I like to follow um, the the um, history uh, from childhood to old age, for example. So I, and now that I'm thinking out loud, both these books follow a family from one generation to the other. And I like it because when you read, you can live other people's lives or like I have the feeling for that. So it's mm -hmm. nice. And this just popped into my head. But if you had to write a book, what would you write it about? <laughs> Ooh, well, <laughs> Maybe, maybe I would continue my diary out in the field and I would make it into a book. Okay, nice. Good answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so next, uh, next personality type question we got here is, could you name one or a few of your heroes and tell us why you admire these people? Hmm, yes. Hmm, my hero is Jane Goodall. <laughs> she's a primatologist and anatologist and she studied she's alive she's an amazing uh, woman and uh, and she studied chimpanzees and she studied their social life and family life she's one of the first um, etologists talking about feelings for animals and personalities and that's something I really love and uh, she's such a strong and tough woman that I 
I mean, it's uh, I would like to be Jane Goodall. Like that's <laughs> she's she's amazing. And um, and I got to know her. I I mean I didn't get to know. Her. I I heard about her when I was uh, studying during my bachelor, I think. And uh, and then I actually like one year ago I went to a TED talk, and uh, I don't remember. Yeah, it was a TED talk, and she was. She was talking to. She was talking about conservation and wildlife extinctions, and and it was very, very inspiring. I think she's my hero because she inspires me a lot, and uh, and that's very important to have a person to follow and 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 feel that you can do it. Like that, there's people, great people doing this, and you can you can get close at least. I, I think so. I I think she's a great role model, and maybe someday you'll have young girls, um, you know, talking about <laughs> Cecilia on a podcast. <laughs> well, well, we will. See. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so the this next question, I want you to think of the traits and characteristics that define Cecilia as a person in your mind, and then link that up with an animal. And from here, you'll tell us your spirit animal and tell us why. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so um, I would say that uh, I move a lot. I travel a lot, and I have, I have, I am not in one place. I am in <laughs> a lot of places, and I. So we could say that I migrate. <laughs> so I can be a bird, a migrating bird. And uh, and for example, I was actually talking about this. Uh, I talked about this a lot of time with my friends, especially with my best friend Julia. And we were like, ah, which animal could you be? And she said that I am a swift, that I'm a bird, and uh, a swallow. We, you can also say, and I fly far. But then I come back. I come back to my nest, and I and I take care of of my people so of my friends and my family so i think that's a characteristic that can be related to a um, migrating bird and nesting bird and um but on the other side i'm uh, i'm getting more independent year by year growing up so in this sense i feel like a carnivore so for example lynx is my favorite animal since i was a child and I'm very fascinated by this animal and lynx is very independent and it's such an elusive animal. I'm not elusive, <laughs> but uh, I'm becoming more and more independent. So I think that trait can be related to a lynx. Uh, so probably, probably lynx, the lynx is my spirit animal, but I think also a bird that is migrating and nesting. So these two characteristics, so both migrating and making a nest is how I do. Like, I really love when I move and, for example, go in a new apartment or in a new house. I like to make my little corners <laughs> to make mm -hmm. it cozy. And that's that's a bird. That's a bird making his nest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I can, I would say I could be a swift and a lynx. Nice. Very interesting combination. Now, <laughs> <laughs> this this one is... Uh, more of a problem-solving question, but mm -hmm. 
I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation. So you are on an abandoned island for an extended period of time. What is one thing you would bring for survival, one -hmm. thing to keep you occupied, and then one person you would bring to keep you company? Uh Uh-huh. So uh, survival, for survival, I think I would bring a knife. It's quite obvious, but it's so useful, um, both for hunting and making weapons with the wood and I don't know I could do a lot of things with a knife so that could be my survival mm-hmm. tool and then an object to keep me occupied well the accordion because I'm learning to play accordion my father has an accordion and I'm starting to learn I started a bit when I was a child but then I now I'm back on this in- musical instrument And I never have time to play it because I'm always either in Sweden or in Norway. So, and the accordion is back home in Italy, in Rome. So Mm -hmm. probably I would bring the accordion with me and finally play it (laughs) and have time to play it. And I mean, time is like, accordion takes a lot of time to learn. So I would definitely need uh, an isolated island to to play and practice. (laughs) So that would be a perfect time to finally have some time with my accordion. And the person, uh, the person is Roberto, is my boyfriend, because we are together since five years, but we are, most of the times we're apart. We live in different places and we are roam around a lot. And and I would finally have some time to hang out with him. <laughs> so it, it would be our time together. So I think it would be Roberto. <laughs> nice. Very, very sweet. Now, <laughs> I I think, you know, we're going to start wrapping up here. But before we yes. do that, I wanted to know if there's any future projects, um, people who admire your work, they could look out for. Um... <laughs> uh, yes, because... Uh... We, we, we produced a documentary lately, it's a five minutes documentary on the hazel grouse, that is a forest bird that lives in uh, Swedish forests. And we did a little um, documentary for our researcher uh, where in the research uh, station where I'm doing my PhD, that it's called Grimso, Wildlife Research Station. And we're, we will soon um, bring this documentary out. So that that is going to be nice. It's uh, about the hazel grouse. And then we're starting to film uh, my PhD project about wolves. And um, but that's a very, very big project. And it will take time, but it will come. It will come. It will be a documentary about uh, about my experience with uh, wolf research and uh, and uh, how they do it in Sweden. Mm, very interesting. And where could people find that documentary that was released, the the Arctic fox one? The Arctic fox, if you write tra le volpi artiche, that means among Arctic foxes, uh, it pops up uh, the Italian national television channel and you can watch it again. Or basically, if you go on Facebook uh, on my on my personal page, then uh, sometimes I repost it. Or if you go through the um, publications, then then you can uh, you can definitely find it. Or you can write me. <laughs> okay, wonderful. So uh, this is about all the time we have 
left. So Cecilia, I want to thank you for sharing your stories and your life with us. It's been really amazing hearing about this. And to everyone (laughs) listening, yeah, to everyone listening, you can check out all these things that the links will provide. And for now, that's that's all, folks. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.